before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed during the end game should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now, on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of The End Game. Joining me, as always, as we continue our search for whatever might await us, is the good man himself, Bill Fleckenstein. Hi, mate. Hello, mate. How are you today? I'm doing I'm doing very well. There's, there's storm clouds all around the Cayman Islands, which may be appropriate for the conversation we're about to have, but uh, <laughs> so far, no rain. How's the, how's the leg? Uh, doing better. Just now, I'm um, 100% healed. I'm just I've got to rebuild my calf muscles. That a boy, that a boy. Just stand on the edge of the stairs. In fact, you can do the whole podcast just standing on the edge of the stairs on your tiptoes. Going up I went to PT already today. I'm, I'm you done did? for right, today. Fine. Yeah. All right. I'm going to need. I will need a note from your PT chief just to make sure that you do that. Well, look, joining us today, uh, we're delighted to have uh, Greg Jensen, a co-CIO of Bridgewater. And uh, you know, the conversation we want to have is is very broad in nature. Bill and I are both really interested in the framework these guys use and how they kind of think about broad aspects of not just uh, the bond market and the equity markets, but but the the way the whole thing is held together. You know, Bill and I have been reading Ray Dalio's work for a number of years. We, we've kind of dug into that and it does make for an interesting conversation when you have someone as big as this, Bill, that do the work on the macro, but also have to manage money. Yeah, that the have to manage the money part is, is where you um, sometimes can really learn things because we're all wrong and what you have to adjust to that and rework your theories and all that. So I'm really uh, looking forward to, to hearing uh, his thoughts. And let's put a stake in the ground. Nobody's more wrong than you and me, right? We're not going to let people come running past us in the home stretch, no, damn it. No, no, it'd really be hard. We're, we're tough to beat. <laughs> all right, well, let's bring Greg in and see what he has to say. All right. Well, Greg, welcome to the Endgame Podcast. Thanks so much for taking the time to do this with us. Well, thanks for having me. We've both been looking forward to this conversation for a while. It's um, yeah, th- This series has been such a fascinating journey. It's kind of gone in directions that, that Bill and I didn't really think it would go in, and, and we've kind of kicked around so many interesting ideas. And, and what we've you know, really tried to do every time we've had one of these conversations is just really start with some really broad ideas and then kind of see where they take us. And they, they inevitably focus on two or three things, and, and there's, there's definitely a few themes that – come up recurringly so we'll definitely if they don't come up naturally in this conversation we'll kind of see where your thoughts are on that but I guess to kick off what would be great is to get a sense of how your framework at Bridgewater has had to I guess evolve over the last kind of 13-14 years in the age of QE and all this extraordinary policy I mean if we could kind of kick that around just just kind of walk through how you you feel that that you've had to adapt to, to meet the times. Yeah great question so let me just start with what we do at Bridgewater, and, and then we can talk about how it, how it evolves over time. But for 45 years, the only thing that Bridgewater has been trying to answer two questions. Um, one is how does the global economy work? And how do you take that understanding and utilize it to build great portfolios? Those are That's the focus of the organization. That's all we do. And we've been focused since 1980 in systemizing that thinking so that everything that we've ever learned about markets or economies, we've written down programmed into algorithms in 1980. That was rules on yellow piece of paper with employees going around with scientific calculators. Today, that's algorithms. But those algorithms reflect the logic of, well, how does this machine work? How do we track the money in the world? Why do assets go up or down in different conditions? What are assets pricing? All those kinds of questions and building that logic over time. So it's a what I call a compound understanding machine, but we keep trying to learn. Right. And, and so when you talk about the evolution, I mean, I just think of it all the time. There are things happening in the world that are surprising us. And that's then the new research is all focused on those surprises and things that we haven't already built in. Of course, when you think about quantitative easing and even MP3, I wouldn't really describe that as a surprise in the following sense that, look, if you take, as we did at Bridgewater, hundreds of years of history, these patterns emerge, right? You have major debt cycles, interest rate cycles. You get to the end of those cycles. When you get such debt problems that interest rates get near zero, you always get money printing and quantitative easing. So we had been thinking about quantitative easing. I remember we built our first systems around that in 2001. 
obviously well before the financial crisis, A, as U.S. interest rates in that cycle got down near zero, we recognized the risk of it. And Japan was starting to play around in very minor ways. And we studied the Great Depression. We studied, well, how does, how does that work as monetary policy, recognizing these different types of eras and, um, and built very crude systems for what to do in markets when you get to quantitative easing. How do you reflect that pressure in a way similar to how you would reflect movements in interest rates in your views about what's going to happen to growth, inflation, and asset prices? So then in comes 2008, and we get to quantitative easing, and we're using those processes. And then we're learning, right? Like a dollar of QE in the US is much more effective than a dollar of QE in, in Japan. Well, why is that? Mm-hmm. Right. And understanding the mechanics of that. Well, all it depends on who gets the money, what they do with it. And that if they're buying one type of assets from one type of investors in the US and another asset from a different type of investor in Japan, you're going to get different outcomes. And so we've refined our understanding of quantitative easing just by staring at what's surprising us, learning, building that into the process, and you keep moving. Right. And today we've moved from up, you know, the period from let's say the 1950s through 2008, a, a period of interest rate, what we call MP1, into MP2 being quantitative easing. And now this phase that's been accelerated with the pandemic has been this movement into monetary, what we call monetary policy three, but it's the merger of fiscal and monetary policy. And that's all happening for reasons that have played out before in history. It's happening again. And it's, um, I think, while it's very hard day to day to know what's going to come next, I think the big waves you can see and the likely cause effect linkages of where this is headed over some period of time. And so that's what we study and we keep studying it, keep evolving, thinking about new things that are emerging over the last 15 years, dealing with China's rise and what is it like to have two world economic powers at the same time or inequality and what it's like in a democratic capitalist society to get these levels of inequality. All of those questions are the questions that we continue to build into our process, reflect on all of history and try to therefore have an advantage on what's likely to come next. Yeah, I, I love this historical focus because it's, you know, I keep talking to people about this and I, and I, I do believe all the answers are there somewhere in the history books. Because like, as you say, we, this, this has all happened before in various forms, maybe not at the same time as it is now. So as you've kind of thought about this ahead of time, and, and you know, if you're thinking about QE in 2001, you're seven years ahead of its arrival. As it's come in, how has the initial kind of explosion of QE into markets perhaps kind of differed from the way you had kind of gamed it to play out once it finally got here? Well, I think the thing that, um, you know, what the, the original QE in 2008 really offset a credit contraction. Yep. And that's actually easy for the central banks to do. They can print money, offset a credit contraction. And we were very right in that period in thinking that's not going to be inflationary because all they're doing is offsetting a, credit, a disinflationary, deflationary credit contraction. This is not inflationary. It is supporting assets, supporting balance sheets and moving us along in that way. And so that period, you know, I think we nailed the mechanics of that correctly, measured those, those roughly right. As I said, subsequently, I'd say we got somewhat surprised by how stuck money got in Japan and Europe, and it didn't go out in the global economy as much and and didn't create the same degree of outcomes. And then more recently, while we were thinking that the destiny was there, that you would end up with QE not doing enough because QE works through asset prices. Asset prices keep rising, but this kept making the wealth divide worse. And money kept getting stuck at the top. You're giving more and more money to the people that need it the least, that are doing the least with it in terms of the real economy. And so money's piling up and you had this stuck at the top phenomenon in the US that itself was unsustainable, which would eventually lead to some redistribution, some of that essentially taking the deflationary impulses in the world and transferring them to the people that hadn't accumulated the wealth. One way or the other, we thought that mechanism would come up that you would see that over the next decade. And of course, it all happens in a six-month period, a, real, a very, very, very fast period. And so that has you know, radically changed things. Now, I, and I think you're seeing it. It's interesting. You know, we've been wrong about bonds over the last year, particularly the last few months, because we think that nominal GDP impact of what's going on is going to be huge. It's more sustained than the Fed expects because you've created all of this money, all of this demand without corresponding supply. And you're seeing all of that in the stats. Interestingly, and it's a good humbling experience to go through, you know, in the markets, it's been different, right? You're not seeing the flow through. Now, there's 
good reason for that in that the Fed continues to buy half the bonds that are being issued. The other bonds, in a sense, are being funded by this excess amount of cash everywhere and excess cash of balance sheets. How sustainable that is when nominal GDP is flying and eventually the Fed's going to withdraw the purchase of bonds, I'd, I'd expect anyway, if, as, if nominal GDP continues to be as strong as we expect. But that's certainly been a learning, which is this period, despite the tremendous pressure in the economy and the tremendous shortages and the obvious inflation pressures that are now even showing up in the government statistics, that um, you still have had interest rates remain where they are. That's been, you know, again, the markets and economies continue to always humble you with things that are surprises. And so obviously one of our current research projects are getting to the bottom of the buying and selling that's causing that, how sustainable it is. It looks unsustainable to us, but, but anyway, we'll see as that evolves. You, uh, I think, just touched on something about inflation that I, that I keep scratching my head over, and, and that is, it would seem, and based on what I've read that you've written, that it seems like a reasonable expectation that, that inflation will not prove to be transitory. Obviously, we don't know that for sure, but we could make a pretty good case that that'll be the outcome. And yet, it seems to me that market participants don't want to believe that. I've seen surveys, you've probably seen the same ones, where it seems like the vast majority of investors think that it will be transitory. And I'm guessing the bond market must think that because otherwise, why would it be where it is? Is that sort of the same conclusion you have that people have decided that it's transitory and that if it's not transitory, we're going to go through a, a whole shift where a lot of investors have to start moving their portfolios and their um, the assets that they own around? Yeah, I agree with how you're reading the market. Certainly, you can see most directly in the break-even inflation rate is quite is quite low. Um, relative to what's going on with inflation. And in our view, the, the physics of what's necessary, you know, that in one sense, people could think of inflation as bad, but you have to consider all your options here. What are the options? We have a situation where wealth is divided extremely poorly. You have a situation where the interest rates are already, have already been pushed to zero and, and you're only stimulating what you're stimulating that this move to fiscal policy is the natural outcome of this, the end of this 40-year cycle. If you go back to the early 80s, you had a cycle that started with tight money to get inflation down. That deflationary wave was compounded by globalization, the lowering of tariffs, the benefiting from the labor force all over the world, extremely pro-corporate policies, even by the time Clinton's president, that it was a bipartisan agreement on market economies, and such, you go through 2000, 2008, that whole extreme cycle that was essentially anti-labor, pro-corporate, pro-assets, lower interest rates, pro-debt, all of those things have reached a crescendo, right? That what do you have to do now to sustain that? You got to print money, you got to get rid of the debt, you've got, you get, and now you've got to look at everybody that were the losers in that whole game and how do they benefit in society or you risk the loss of society. So that's this huge cycle. And when you look at the options, given where we've now pushed asset prices to, that how do you reconcile asset prices with cash flows? The one way to look at the overall economy, I look at it like it's a family business and how long, how much future income do you have to take to pay back all of the owners, right? And so if it was a family business, your parents are transferring it to you. Today, if you take the US equity market, the combination of the debt and the equity and say, well, how long would it take to pay off all the asset owners for their draw on future income? You'd have to work the family business for 25 years before you get a paycheck, yeah. right? And that is one of the four peaks in history. You had that peak in 1999, 2000, you have that peak in 1929, you have that peak in 1965, and you have that peak in 1905 in terms of the years of future income that are dedicated to paying back the wealth. And there's just two ways to reconcile that. It, and, and basically, that's where you have huge wealth divide problems. Um, and one way or the other, the cash flows, the willingness for people in the future to work to pay off old wealth holders is is bounded in a democracy. And um, and so you um, end up with this extreme and you have two ways to reconcile it. Of course, in 1929 and 1999, 2000, we know how it gets reconciled. Crashes that um, are deflationary themselves and they get resolved one way. That's one possibility. I think that's the lower of the two possibilities on how this gets reconciled. I think the, the more plausible is you bring incomes up through rising nominal GDP, through government redistribution, and that that is offsets the 
the disinflationary pressures and you push to an inflationary environment that allows incomes to catch up. That's how 1965 and 1905, how incomes uh, came in line with asset prices, negative real returns and assets, high, but not necessarily down in nominal terms and high wage growth and nominal GDP growth that brings cash flows in line with asset prices. So that's my best guess of what policymakers will stumble their way towards um, and are stumbling their way towards. It's not like there's a grand plan to create inflation in order to reconcile incomes with the asset prices. But one way or the other, you get to choose every day. Do you keep money easy? Do you keep do you tighten it? If equities go down 20%, what do you do? Do you let it happen or do you and those choices? And I think we see the bias of the choices are clear that every downturn is going to be met with more and more fiscal and monetary policy. And every upturn, the tightening is going to be slower. The complete reverse of what Volcker did in the 1980s to get control inflation, they did the opposite. Every tightening was tight. You know, they get the real rates high. And then inflation starts falling in through this whole process. It's easier and easier money, bigger and bigger budget deficits now over the last three cycles. And that's the, to me, that's the destiny until, and this, this is the big risk. Everybody's worried in the markets about a slowdown if there's if COVID gets worse or something happens in China or such, where actually a slowdown is easy. If a deflationary slowdown is easy for policymakers, they'll print more money and spend more money. What's hard is when they're constrained. And that constraint, obviously, is inflation and currency. And that's where the gig will be up when you get there. And that's actually what, in our view, everybody has to start hedging in their portfolios is not the next downturn in disinflation, deflationary downturn. It's the fact the essentially inflation and currency problems becoming constraints on the government and this world where we've been living in, where policymakers can get whatever they want, more or less, from the stock market and, and interest rates to a world where they can't. And how do you hedge that? That's really, we think, the big question for portfolios. Well, well how, how do you? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I agree. I mean, that is the big question, right? Yeah. So I think a, a few different things that we play with it. It's, it's a having looking at different ways to have storeholds of wealth and different ways to arbitrage what the government's giving you. So I'll start with the second arbitraging what the government's giving you. The government is giving you bond yields at one percent and nominal GDP well above that. And the likelihood that the cash flows generated in the economy are better than the bonds is very very high. So the more you can isolate the types of equities that are likely to generate cash flows associated with nominal GDP. You've got a good spread, but you better be hedged. It doesn't, equities are not attractive on an outright basis. They're only, or like cash flows, almost any cash flow that's out there is not attractive on an outright basis, only attractive relative to interest rates. All the asset prices make a reasonable amount of sense as long as interest rates stay here. So basically, getting those cash flows by packaging up, not the bubble stocks and whatever, but getting the cash flows of companies that are likely to move up and down with nominal GDP and hedging. The risk that the that the central bank can't maintain control of the economy. I think there's great hedges available. Whether short bonds, I think, is a very good hedge. Short three third, you know, three year from now, euro dollars or whatever are great hedges because that's the risk is that the Fed ends up having to tighten when they don't want to. It's not a risk that the economy goes down and they print more checks because that money will flow into assets and whatever from an asset holder perspective. And so that's one thing. The second thing is the store hold of wealth question, which is, okay, the policy is clear. And also I'd say somewhat sensible, but clear is to diminish the value of the dollar. And so the main question is, what do you hold against that diminishing value? And, and there's no one, in my view, unfortunately, no one great answer to that. It's a combination. We hold a portfolio of things. You want to hold some foreign currencies that don't that aren't going through those policies. You want to hold, probably we think inflation index bonds, even at very, very low real yields have some place to, to do some of the hedging because the break-even inflation rates are so low. So they're so much more attractive than nominal bonds. You've got um, gold and commodities and other necessities as part of that, but getting more of those things where the supply are more limited and there's actually reason to hold, that's a portfolio of that and not taking any one bet. It may be gold. It's possible. It's gold you know, is the old way and cryptocurrency is the new way or whatever, but a basket of things that will protect you in that world. And then stress testing, does that basket actually work? Look at the 70s, look at other periods of 
when they purposely brought down money and what are those things? And I think that leads you to A, being cautious because you might not know before you enter that, diversified in that, but much more so, everybody is in US financial assets to such an extreme, right? Yeah. That those are dangerous. I mean, US debt instruments are particularly dangerous. US equities that benefit directly from the liquidity that the Fed's giving are, are dangerous, right? So looking for a more globally diversified basket of things along those lines would be, you know, places that we'd be thinking about. Yeah, Greg, there's so many different parts of what you've just been talking about that I want to unpack. For the first time, I think this whole series, I don't really know where to start. There's so much to get your teeth into. But let me take you back to the answer you gave a few moments ago. We we're talking about the bond market, the inequality. And on the one hand, we've got the Fed talking about how they're not generating any inequality. I mean, it's 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 farcical to suggest that. It's so clear, as you pointed out so beautifully about what QE1 did. But as you guys think through cause and effect as we move down possible policy choice decision trees, and I think you're absolutely right, hedging against that deflationary uh, impulse is the easiest thing to do because we now know exactly what's going to happen. There does, of course, come a point where that playbook won't work anymore. I don't know how far away you think we are from that. But the other thing that I've pondered for some time is we've been used to over multiple decades now that the bond market is sending the correct signal. People say, you know, you've got to listen to the bond market. And so when we look at Bill's point about where the bond market's trading, it's suggesting that you know things aren't great and, and markets are perhaps deflation is in the future. Do you guys, through your work, do you believe that the bond market still sends an uncorrupted signal? Or has the fact that we've had essentially global coordinated QE basically dulled all those signals in the bond market because now people, as we've just highlighted, they know what the response is going to be. So they're ahead of the response, not necessarily the, the economic conditions that would price the bond market at a certain level? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And, and I've really, you know, this is a thing in terms of learning and, and a better way to thinking, particularly in this environment, about what are the markets saying, right? When I joined Bridgewater 25 years ago and thinking about reading the market, right, you think of the bond yield as reflecting the likely economic conditions, growth and inflation conditions. And, and the bond market was quite good at that, like you're saying, a pretty reliable signal. Now you move into a world, a policy dominant from a private sector world where the Fed controlled one thing, the short rate, everything else was more or less market determined. The short rate was obviously very important. But you move to this world where, in a sense, the, the central banks controlling the short rate, they're also in a soft sense with QE, controlling the bond yield, and in a soft sense, controlling the aggregate corporate spread and mortgage rates. I mean, that you went from yeah. one level of control to multi-layered control of the economy. That's a big difference. When you look at market prices today, what do you see? It's much more like what you're seeing is what the market thinks the policymakers will do to achieve the outcomes that they want. Rather than reflecting what economic conditions will be, it'll be, well, what interest rate will the Fed set in order to create the economic outcomes they're trying to get? So the, the pricing, and that was probably true to a certain extent all through history, but today it's very directly yeah. true. That's why, why is it that the bond yield is where it is? Well, people think that's where the Fed wants it and that the Fed can get what they want. And so that's the thing. Now, I think even on that basis, the markets are going to prove to be wrong because I think the Fed is going to be forced to change their policy and they're going to allow a higher bond yield because they'll be overwhelmed by the evidence. But anyway, that's the flip from the bonds reflecting the economic conditions to the bonds reflecting the policy that the policymakers want to achieve in order to create a set of conditions. And that's really important when you build systems to trade markets, all of a sudden, you know, think about it differently, right? One way we were thinking, well, what do we think about growth and inflation and how that's reflecting the bond market of being ahead of that? Today, we're th we think more in terms of, well, what are policymakers going to do given the conditions that are likely to happen? And are they going to be able to do it? Like, how do you build in whether they're losing control or not? That's been an evolution in our thinking to reflect today's conditions. By the way, there are parallels in that. You take the 1930s and 40s and you take how did they manage the war economy? It's a fascinating mechanical exercise, right? Obviously, the war is different and whatever. I'm not trying to compare all these things, but you set, had yield curve control purposely to refund the banks. You have um, the ability to do that because you have capital controls. You have a totally different economy that also worked. You know, it can work. And so understanding that, of course, in order to do that, if they want to control the yield curve and the, and the bond rate, et cetera, floating currencies and and a lack of capital controls won't work. So have, they could go down a path of more bond yield control and more capital controls. That's an equilibrium path that might 
work as well that we all have to be prepared for, right? And that in some ways, that's also part of what's growing in probability is more and more capital controls inside a world of more controlled interest rates so that you prevent some of the currency and inflation problems that you'll get if you don't do that. Yeah, it's really interesting. Bill's had this phrase for many, many years now about the bond market taking the printing press away from the government. And, and you know, what you're talking about there where you talk about the market realizing that maybe they don't get what they want, that seems to be Bill's kind of aha moment that we're kind of describing here. So when you think that through, that moment in time where investors realize, you know, they may not actually win this round, this may not turn out the way they think. Do you kind of think through how the dominoes topple at that point? Because that seems to me to be the seismic shift in the markets that we've kind of constructed around ourselves over this last 15 years or so, and some kind of disorderly return to, let's call them normally functioning markets, where people's investment aims dictate their actions rather than policymaker decisions. Yeah, well, and I think that all hinges, right? The, the hinges on the dollar and inflation. So what does losing look like for the government? It's only one way to lose, right? As long as they can print money and maintain a stable currency, yep. they can do anything they want. There's no problem, right? Logically, we all know there's a limit to that. Otherwise, why don't we just give money to everyone and fix every, every monetary problem you have, right? So we know there's a limit. We don't know exactly where the limit is, but we know losing is losing control of the currency. And that to me, I mean, this is a little bit more of a stretch, but the, that it's almost inevitable, right? Think of how tempting it is today to say, oh my gosh, how much can we do? There's no end to yeah. what we can do. And if inflation is so low, why not? And what's actually happening, what's causing inflation to be so low, right? And there's an element of, I talked about before, the reason you got the disinflation was Fed policy, high real interest rates, globalization, and kind of the, the pro-corporate anti-labor policies that went on for a long time. And finally, and obviously most importantly now, is technological deflation, right? Now, four or five of those are no longer that deflationary. I mean, globalization's wages around the world have kind of equilibrated yeah. and and it's not like we're getting like globalization isn't coming with problems. And obviously the conflict with China and all that means that people are changing the way they think about globalization, trying to secure supply lines rather than get the most efficient ones and so on. And Fed policy obviously has changed, government policy has changed, and even regulations on corporations are changing. So most things are changing in an inflationary environment with the exception of the disinflation from technology. Now, it makes sense to be clear as a government policy, if you have a significant disinflation from technology, redistributing that boon, it's a boon for the economy to have that disinflation, somehow spreading that out so it doesn't all get concentrated just in the people that control that technology, um, which would be a very dystopian future if you didn't do anything about that outcome. There's a good to that. And there's a, a limit to that, though, which is you do some of that. And when you do too much of it, you create other types of problems. Right. And so now the question is, what's appropriate amount and how far beyond that have we gotten or when will we get beyond that? Because it's unquestionable. We're tapping that reserve. We're using it massively. And how big that reserve is, is the question for how quick this will go. Within Bridgewater, we're all debating how quick. I'm definitely on the view of we are in hyperinflation and warp speed. I think what happened in the markets, what's happening is so fast that the odds that you've used that resource and before you know it, it's gone because you've spent, you put so much money out there. Yeah. And there is, other than World War II, no parallel to what's going on with government spending. And so I think we may tap it very quickly. Who I don't know. And I, we try to measure the mechanics of it. And I, there's a lot of room for error in that. And so it may take a while. But does anybody really believe we're not going to tap, like we're not going to use it all? Because now that you know it's there and you're tapping it, like we're going to use it and printing money and all that can happen so quickly. So if I'm wrong and it doesn't happen in this cycle, the next downturn, we're going to hit it even harder. Yeah. And I think that's the inevitable part of it. And I, I do fear that it's happening quicker then we realize then that we're in for some significant volatility associated with realizing that actually we've used the whole disinflationary reserve and now we've got to adjust and all asset prices are built on the current liquidity levels and the current interest rate levels. And if those aren't sustainable, a whole lot of things will have to adjust significantly. You described the bond market in a way that I would never thought about it before of, if I paraphrase this correctly, where the bond market is 
sort of pricing in what the policymakers kind of want or are liable to try to encourage to happen. I never thought of it that way before. When you marry that up with what you just said, as long as the bond market is willing to price itself at where the policymakers want it and not off the real world as the inflation pressures that we are seeing, it seems like it would be easier to use up that disinflation reservoir sooner rather than later, because it's the longer that the bond market lets the government continue on this policies, it seems the faster we'll use that up. Is, 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 that, is that an accurate extension of what you said? Yes, I think that's the case, right? And you're creating these massive incentives and the incentive that, in a sense, I'm encouraging people like in their investment portfolio to think through, which is take advantage of that, right? The economy naturally is, in a sense, although I'd argue in a very unhedged way, meaning people are asset prices are surging. Everything is surging because the interest rates are so low and there's so much money and, and that the movement out of bonds by the private sector, because the Fed's purchasing more and more of them, and the fiscal money is all going into these things, but they're all also reliant on those things. So there's very little where you're taking advantage of the fact that, yeah, the government is like the bond market's giving you that. And it's also the biggest risk that it goes away. And that's where it comes into doing those things that are naturally being encouraged, but making sure you have the hedge that's necessary and that you don't get scared off in the very short term. Bond yields fall when equities fall right. um, in the yeah. short term. But in the long term, that policy, particularly when you hit policymaker constraints, reverses. And so what was normally a hedge, which is let me hold some bonds with my stocks, will probably become the opposite when there's the liquidity has to come out of the system and you have to kind of repeg your currency. Right. And that's the fourth phase. If you follow this through historical cycles, we're in the third phase. Print the money, spend the money, deal with the debt problem you're at in basically the Jubilee phase of the big cycles. But what comes next is the phase where you got to repeg a currency. And that's the super painful phase for assets. You have to rebuild the faith in a currency one way or the other. Sometimes they peg it. It could be like the 1980s where you just do that by the Fed driving real interest rates very high. It could be like other periods where it gets pegged to something else. But that is the natural next phase after you use up that reservoir you do this kind of jubilee, you get rid of the debts in nominal terms, and you have this currency that's too volatile to really pin down an economy, and then you peg it in some form. So I think that is, again, the, the thing you want to be thinking about. Now, again, uh, as I said, policymakers may be sooner, maybe later. Um, it depends how policymakers go. You can imagine if Republicans get control of Congress in 2022, maybe the fiscal gets way cut back in the short term, and you you have less of that. I mean, all of those things are possible, but I do think that the destiny of this wave is of that nature that you eventually come back full cycle to where you've done everything you can with the currency and you have to repeg it. And that'll, that'll be the next movement. Greg, it's, it's so interesting hearing you talk that through because I, I think anytime you've, you've looked at historical examples of this stuff, you can talk about this in terms of history. And it's a very straightforward set of dots to join from where we are now, certainly from where we've been through where we are now to exactly what you just described of having to repeg the currency to something. When you don't look at it through a historical lens, you tend to get headlines about, you know, the dollar losing its hegemony and the end of it as the reserve currency. And it sounds so much more dramatic and so much more, therefore, impossible for it to happen. And I think you get a lot of debate about this. People saying, well, it'll never happen. The dollar won't lose its hegemony. But as I say, what you've just described has happened over and over and over again throughout history. So how do you go about communicating these thoughts to investors in a way that strips out the kind of hyperbole and the charged rhetoric of scenarios that seem in the context of today to be so dramatic, and yet on a historical basis, they happen every 35, 40 years? Yeah, well, and we try to just look at this as a as mechanics, right? And you go through this and even for us, like going through all of this, there's the big surprises that happen, right? Like, I mean, it was hard to imagine it. We had actually built into our process, the idea that interest rates probably couldn't be negative. You know, that that we thought like that, that, that was a very unlikely thing. That was a huge a mistake on our part, believing that, right? That the things that, again, if you went back in 1980s or 1990, not that long ago and said, you know what, interest rates are going to be negative. And people are going to see that as totally normal. And they're going to think that 
like it's almost impossible to picture the Fed raising interest rates to 3%. Like how you couldn't even fathom this. And here we are, right? And that the US government's going to run a budget deficit of 15% of GDP into a surging economy and so on and so forth. So many things are already inconceivable, right. but we adjust to them as they happen and they're, they're normal. So again, the same thing will happen, I think, with the dollar and everything. It'll happen. In, I mean, it, it could happen in a very dramatic way, but it also could happen like we have shifted from a budget deficit policy that's so radically different, a monetary policy that's so radically different, negative interest rates. You could go into high interest rates and inflation. And a lot of the reason that all of these things, markets, uh, that the pricing of the current regime gets so entrenched, right? What, how much evidence is it going to take to believe that inflation is really happening? And we all look back at the 70s and think, how could these policymakers have been so dumb? Wasn't it obvious they could interest rate low? But it's just like this, right? They lived through it. If you read the Fed notes from those periods, they're thinking it's going to come back. It's the oil. It's an oil supply track. They have all totally reasonable reasons. They're not idiots. They're no dumber than we are. They just, it all happened. And they had a history of stable prices, the Great Depression, et cetera. And you see how these things build. So anyway, in terms of explaining it, I mean, we try to bring people through the mechanics. We try to um, show the benefits of this range of scenarios. And, you know, over time, we've been right, right about enough, although we're wrong about plenty. <laughs> um, so, so as I say these things, I hope everybody will understand that we're right just slightly more often than we're wrong. But that... Um, Going through that through history, describing that, and then being able to, because we dig into well, who the buyers and sellers were, what motivated them, et cetera, being able to describe why we're wrong, I think all of that kind of builds the comfort that there's a that there's a engineering. And this is not for us, it's not political. We're not making any points about how everything should be, just yeah, trying to yeah. measure the mechanics of how everything actually works. Where does the dollar, where do the dollars come from? Where do they go? What does that mean? So that it's also a super analytical process where oftentimes a lot of people's views on these things seem to be more skewed based on their political views and whatever, rather than a purely mechanical look at how the system works. Since you've kind of thought ahead and tried to think through the unthinkable, so to speak, I understand completely the case for the bond market starting to revolt and take the printing press away and the way you described it. What I have trouble figuring out is how the dollar declines against other you know, say Japan or or the or the euro when they're pursuing similar policies, although we're in different phases of them, particularly versus Japan. I mean, I know it can happen, but I can't create an imaginative framework as how that could take place. Since you've thought about it, could could you kind of describe how how it might take a guess at how that might happen? Yeah. Well, let me um first say on the the first part of your question was, and I just want to say the way what I'm saying about bonds are slightly different than what you're saying. So let me just okay uh, clarify that first. To be clear, the Fed can't have the printing press taken away from them by the mar bond market, right? I think that was the fundamental mistake in the bond vigilante thing is if the Fed can print money and buy the bonds, they can drive the bond yield wherever they want. They just have to live with the repercussions of that. Right. The repercussions of that show up in inflation and currencies, and then the Fed has to decide how they react to that. So what I think is going to take away the printing press from the Fed is the economic reality of inflation, et cetera. Okay. Then the Fed's going to start lowering their purchases. And at what level will you attract the private sector in to fund this budget deficit? My guess is in today's conditions, and I think it'll be worse in the future, but in today's conditions, it would probably take something like a 4% bond yield to attract private sector capital to fill the budget deficit if the Fed wasn't filling half of it. So something like that. You could look at who would be the buyers, what sure. price would they require, and whatever. So it, it would take something like that. Now, will the Fed allow that? They'll buy the bonds to get the outcomes they want. But if the outcomes become a problem for them, they'll start buying fewer bonds and allow the private sector to set the bond yield. That's how I think the first phase of the bond sell-off will likely occur, that the inflation. Now, on the currency question you're asking, I don't necessarily mean I agree with you, Japan, Europe, all roughly in the same boat. Although to be fair, the what the U.S. is doing today right. is beyond any of those in terms of the fiscal policy element of this. Yes, and way beyond. I mean, a lot of times we get the question like, "Well, Japan ran big deficits and printed a lot of money." Yes, but only in a very passive sense, meaning most of the deficits were revenue declines, not spending increases. The U.S. is a spending increase surge, not a revenue decline story. In fact, revenues are surging. So. A, Japan didn't do very much relative to the deflationary pressures. The U.S. is doing five times more than anything Japan ever tried. And so that's really important to 
to realize, and the U.S. is pushing this in today in a pro-cyclical period. So a very extreme difference. So in any event, now the budget deficit itself has two sides on the currency, right? What you're seeing is the dollar can be strengthened by the budget deficit because foreigners buy some of those bonds. They turn their currency into buy U.S. bonds, U.S. higher interest rates relative to the rest of the world. Sucks in some capital. Of course, whether it ends up being bearish or bullish just depends on how much of the money that's printed and then spent goes out in terms of consumption or investment into the rest of the world and the netting of that. But the longer term path is printing money, driving down the currencies, not necessarily relative to each other, but relative to everything else. And so that's where you see it. If you don't get it in relative currencies, you'll see an inflation. Now, not every country is doing this, so it's also interesting, like financially, where are the banana republics kind of is like the developed world is now the banana republics. You go to look at Mexico's monetary policy or whatever, and it's much more like U.S. in the 1980s than the U.S. today in terms of that. So you also have a shifting between which central banks can get away with this and the difference between countries that are still building their credibility are operating very different than those that are using their credibility. Um, and um, and so you are also, I think you will see a shift among the currencies where these policies are not occurring and the currencies that where they are. And But more generally, it'll probably show up in inflation and real assets, the currency weakness across all of those areas. Craig, let, let me go back, if I can, to something you touched on very briefly a little while ago, and that's you, you talked about societal problems um, as a as a, an almost inevitable outcome of this. Now, again, you know that historical lens is enormously instructive in terms of of how these policies tend to ripple through society. I think anyone who's paying attention can see those ripples taking place now. Ironically, with kind of social media and the general media landscape being the way it is. The, the ripples are kind of disparate. It's hard to put them together because you see so many different inputs into your media feed. It's not coordinated in the, in the you know three network channels as it used to be. But talk us through how you think about these potential societal problems because they're not just US-based. This is happening in France. We're seeing protests in Australia. We're seeing protests in the UK. That, that fabric really feels to be under pressure. So how do you think that through in terms of what that might mean for stability of the financial system and potential asset prices if it does start to escalate from here? Yeah, well, like you said, I think history is a guide. And, and that fabric that you're describing, that that didn't always exist, of course. The yeah. television, three networks, uniting a nation or whatever, that's a post-World War II United States kind of thing. You go back before that, and media is local and newspapers and whatever, and everybody's hearing you have a similarly divided country in many ways. And, and that's where we think the 20s and 30s are. Again, they're I'm not I don't want to overstate the similarities, but there's a lot of similarities where you have disinflationary wealth divides. You have media pretty divided as well. You have very different stories. And the U.S. handles this better than any other country in the world. Right. But still radical change. Right. So you go through the 1920s and you get to FDR and you get you know coming off the gold standard and all of these things. Radical change, radical change that really worked in the sense that the U.S., if you take the basic balance that has worked, it won't necessarily always work, but has worked in the US is this balance between democracy and capitalism, staying in some harmony that capitalism has a winner take all phenomenon, democracy has a one person, one vote imperfectly as we do it, but still pulls back in another direction. And, and you see those waves, right? But you get this period of the 1930s where you had a fragmented country, it comes together, it comes together in part because you have a joint enemy, like without that, it's a question of how you come back together. But anyway, so you go through that period of radical change and um, extreme division through it, a joint enemy, et cetera, you come out united and because of the inflation of the war, the private sector comes out totally unindebted while the public sector comes out with high debts. So now we have this sort of playing out again, in a sense, but without anything pulling us together, uh, many things dividing us, very few things pulling us together. But you're having that revival of the private sector debt getting pushed to the government, the government printing away that debt, very similar to World War II. You come out with high nominal debt of the government and lower, a little bit lower private sector debt. So I think that you're right that we have this division. It's not clear how we fix it. But one thing that we know is we were on an unsustainable path of more and more concentration of wealth, technology creating a winner-take-all society, having a, so much of a growing, more than the majority of the country, losing 
real purchasing power. That's not a sustainable democracy. You are going to have to give on something. And so then what do you give on, right? How do you do this? Do you print money, create inflation, go down the paths of UBI, do you do something else? What do you do? That we're stumbling through. And it's very possible we fail in finding a solution. But what I do think is true is the old process of the, let's say, a private sector dominated, technology dominated, more and more corporate power was not going to work, that something had to give. And we're in the process of seeing whether the things that we're doing are better than that. But it was it was a natural outcome that there was going to be a counter reaction. And you're seeing that and you continue to see it with the disgruntledness that the counter reaction have not has not done enough. And I'm not sure that we have we know what the tools are to do this. So in a lot of ways, history would also suggest you actually need a terrible crisis to reunite countries like that without a terrible crisis. It may be impossible um, that U.S. history divided into the Civil War. You get the Civil War, you come back together to a certain degree. You know, you have the divisions again, really building up into World War II and World War II brings it back together. But can you get through it without a grave crisis? Obviously, that's the hope. But there's not a lot of evidence in history that you'll get that coming back together without a, some significant break. If you were to guess at what might be the first sort of canary in the coal mine that would suggest that market participants have decided that inflation is going to not be transitory, I'm going back to financial markets again, away from the geopolitical. I know this is a guess, but you've thought about this, I'm sure. Where might it show up first in break-evens, in FX? I mean, I could I could come up with various different scenarios, but do you have a thought about where it might happen? Or you just say, look, we're just going to try to recognize it as it happens and not have a prejudice as to where it's most likely to occur first? A, I think you're seeing it all over the place, right? That you'll see it in commodity prices, you'll see it in supply lines being overwhelmed by demand. You'll see it in wages. You'll see, and, and basically you look at that whole series of things you'd expect to happen. Almost every one of them is happening. Like when we um, look at what inflation pressures are, like the whole dashboard is telling you exactly, you got bubbles, you got everything that you would want to see, right? And so I think that the indications are that you're seeing it and that the main question, the thing, the next step is what will the policy reaction to it be? A, is that wrong? Is all that transitory somehow? The reason that I don't think you're going back, like if you basically take what the markets are saying today, I think they're saying, well, the policymakers are going to maintain policies like this and we're going to come back to something like we were pre-pandemic. But the balance sheets are nothing like they were pre-pandemic. I mean, people have gotten so much wealth. The um, that if you take the things relative to where they were pre-pandemic, right, you've got interest rates so much lower, money printing so much higher, balance sheets so much stronger. The employment situation has never been this tight. You just nobody can find anybody, and the supply lines are so much more overwhelmed than they were before. You know and household wealth has never been anywhere near this paper wealth has never been near these levels. So across the board, you've got the things we'd be looking for. So everything else is gone. You're like deep into the late cycle for everything except the Fed. Like that's the only last moving piece. And that's what I think it's like. So these are the indications. And now it's a question of when will that manifest in Fed policy? And if it doesn't manifest, I think you will see the incentives are to accelerate that. So I think what you'll see is more people borrowing to take advantage of the extremely low interest rate relative to inflation and anything. You can borrow and buy almost anything and probably be better off. I mean, a little bit of a joke on used cars or whatever. But if the Fed doesn't control this, you just create that incentive massively. And I think you'll see more and more of that. And eventually that forcing the Fed getting dragged up, not so much by the bond market, but by that nominal GDP and the recognition that the inflation problem is here to stay. So I think that's that's what you would see. And I think you will see that taking advantage of that arbitrage grow, and that'll be the pressure that will sustain the economy and force the Fed uh, into moving. It's interesting, Greg, because when you kind of think these things through, and I think a lot of people have gone through the same thought exercise and, and come to those similar, if not the same conclusions. So it really boils down to a question of what is the event, the number, the print, whatever it may be, that finally forces the Fed's hand. Because if the three of us can see this stuff happening, other investors can see this stuff happening, we can see these signals, the Fed 
put governor after governor up behind a dais somewhere and they tell you that well, there may be some froth around the edges, but we're not worried that things are getting overheated, which is clearly nonsense giving just about any metric you look at. So it seems to me it boils down to a fact of what's going to be the tipping point? What might be? Is it a double-digit inflation print? Is it some kind of enormous um, uh, weekly earnings number? What could it be, do you think, that might finally mean they cannot stick their hands in the sand anymore and they have to do something? Yeah, well, my thought is, A, it doesn't have to be that dramatic, right? That it, this just keeps time, keeps plugging along. And I think you've seen the last three months, the inflation prints have been pretty incredible. People can keep writing them off. How many, How many? if you annualize them, they're, you know, 9, 10, 11 <laughs> kind of numbers. And how many of those are we going to get before people, before the even the Fed says, you know what, we should start withdrawing liquidity. And all of a sudden, the sensitivity to that liquidity and all these assets that require the constant printing money to sustain the assets because there's no cash flow to sustain them, you know, that it may not be dramatic. I think they will continue as much as they can to go really slow. I think you'll see continuing of those prints and and them moving and then moving in a way to remove some of the liquidity and that getting forced that way. Now, it can be dramatic. I think there is a chance that they're slow and things accelerate so fast that you do see some of those things. But I think the evidence even the last three months has been interesting, right? That you get these pretty remarkable data prints and still very little reaction. Yeah. That tells you both how important the liquidity is and how unimportant at this moment those facts are. And that the second thing is though, but I do also believe that that they will eventually react to those things and they'll get they're getting put more and more in that corner and that they will eventually react to those things because those things build their own momentum. I mean, just think about what's happening, what's going to happen with wages. Wages are going to accelerate at a rate we haven't seen in a long time. Think about social security payments, that they're going to be indexed. Next year, social security payments are going to be indexed to this inflation print that's going to be massive. So a lot of things are happening with a lag. So there's some of the stuff that's behind us because of the pandemic, come back from the pandemic and such. But a lot of this happens with a lag, the wage move and the fixed payments on social security and such that are just revving up, right? And in past periods of inflation, you've never had social security be as, as relevant a part of the economy as it is today, as an example, and it's indexed. So when you look at what causes the ongoing hyperinflations in developed worlds or whatever, indexation is such a big, important part. Now, the US doesn't have too much indexation, but it does have more indexation um, as a result of Social Security and some pension benefits and such. So anyway, all of that, I think there's a decent chance it feels gradual when you look print by print. But I think, you know, nine months, we'll look back and say, it felt gradual day by day, but that, wow, we're in a totally different place than we were when we had this conversation. You know, in listening to this walk through that, it seems to me almost a slam dunk as much as anything can be with all these moving parts, that when the Fed is finally forced to acknowledge that if inflation is going to be non-transitory, as it sounds like we all are assuming, they're almost certainly going to be behind the proverbial curve when they start to act. I just can't see them doing something radical to get out in front of it. And they've already laid the groundwork for that anyway, with all their speeches about, you know, averaging the inflation and, and running hot and all that sort of thing. So it occurs to me that a second order problem might be if they are slow to react and, and withdraw liquidity and that they, they run the risk of losing some credibility when people realize that they're moving slow and maybe they can't act to get in front of it and it creates a whole nother, a whole nother set of problems. I mean, I don't know how likely that yeah, is. Well, and I think that's the, well, I don't know whether that'll be this cycle. I do think eventually okay. that's the cycle that okay. it will be, but I agree with that as a long-term outcome. Now, if, if you said it just, just to take the slam dunk thing, you know, we've all been doing this long enough to know how impossible <laughs> it is. It's hard enough to describe what happened to describe yeah. what's going to happen. Right, right, right. Um, and that the main thing that I'd say, if, if we're wrong about this in this discussion, like what's the what's the future where this it doesn't play out anything like what I'm describing, right? Which is also I think plausible. I'd say much less likely, but plausible. Which is you end up with no that the technological deflationary pressures are so strong that actually this is just a short term mismatch mm -hmm. that you get plenty of demand plenty of supply at very low marginal cost and this eases the inflation pressures ease the supply lines eases you get that past the sort of the pandemic and potentially fiscal policy is removed faster than i expect it will be the republicans win etc you end up in a world and and obviously 
some of the news out of China, whatever, you get a China slowdown or less movement into assets in China, you have some more excess liquidity in the world. And I'd also say that globally, the that there's still an excess of money, liquidity printing, not nearly the same budget deficit. So those would be reasons that there's a lot of liquidity, you maintain low interest rates, and that's plausible. The main thing, the main reason I would say, if that happens, not a problem for most people, that's a good world. The assets will be fine. The thing you have to worry about is the world we're talking about. That world will continue to generate liquidity, continue to provide assets. The world you have to worry about is if those things don't happen. And then, and that getting to the last point back to maybe not this cycle, but if, if you do all of this and it comes back and there's no inflation problem and no currency problem, I mean, just think of how empowered you are in the next downturn. Yeah. And so that's the destiny of it. Such, such a great point. Well, just to be clear, the, sl- the slam dunk part, I didn't mean on the outcome. I meant that the <laughs> Fed would be behind the curve. That was the oh, part yes. that I thought was a slam dunk, not, not, not the future. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, they are behind the curve and they will be that right. They're in agreement. That's yeah, all I was saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm sorry. No, Craig, no, we're, we're, I, we're running out of time a little bit here, but I'd love to just talk a little bit about confidence, about how you guys factor confidence into your models, how how you kind of measure it and where you think we are in that stage. Because we're seeing a lot of, you know, University of Michigan, there's some really wacky numbers coming out in some of these confidence surveys. So how, what kind of an input is that for you and, and how do you monitor it and how do you kind of weigh it when you're trying to figure out what happens next? Mostly we track money and balance sheets and like confidence are usually could be a little bit of a trigger to that. But what really matters is how money is moving. Yeah. So I want to overweigh the importance of confidence. We do have gauges and I, I think sometimes confidence in animal spirits are a thing that we factor into our process to a certain degree, but they're they're limited by balance sheets, right? So if you take when their Trump tax cuts come out or whatever, there is this rise in, in corporate confidence and such that has some effect, but it's limited by balance sheets and, and, and those things that limit it. Today's building in confidence combined with the balance sheets and whatever is a very different sort of much more fiery set of conditions because you have such a radical change in the pre-existing conditions uh, to which money is available to do that, right? You have more money on balance sheets than you've ever had. You have more wealth than you've ever had. So the actual ability to combine the confidence into actions is quite different. So I think um, generally speaking, you want to be doing the opposite of what everybody's doing. So again, if people are very confident in an asset, that's a negative sign, but it's much more negative if that confidence is already drawn the money in there's more money, then it's a different story than if the confidence in the money have already moved. So it really depends on how that confidence and the balance sheet movements are interacting. Well, look, Greg, we've just about run out of time. I can't thank you enough for taking this time to chat with us. It's been hugely enjoyable and incredibly, I think, useful to people listening to this. Just the perspective that you guys have and the work you've done is of, of a level greater than most investors have the capacity to do. So to be able to share in that thinking and, and give people a window into, into the inputs that you guys have put together is a, a remarkable gift for a lot of people. So thank you for that. Well, thank you. It was a lot of fun. And I, I appreciate what you guys are doing, getting all these different points of views out there on how this is going to play out. And then we'll see. It'll be fun to do a retrospective five years from now. Yeah. yeah. Assuming that, I mean, look, Bill and I's hair can't get any gray. You've got some mileage in the tank there, but Bill and I, <laughs> we're stuck the way we are. That's, that's one thing for sure. All right, Greg, listen, thank you so much. Thank you again for your time. All right. Thank you. I really enjoyed that. I have to say, I mean, you know, it, it would have been so good to have more than an hour, but I, I just, I really thought that was a very interesting conversation. I have to say. I did too. And I think, you know, from a macro perspective, we covered a broad area. Had we tried to get into more detail in almost anything, we would have lost the thread of the macro because yeah, exactly I wanted right. to ask a couple questions about how do they know if the algo got off track or if yeah. the theory got off track and how do they reckon? I would love to have talked to them about that as an old programmer myself. I, right. I, I'd love to get into that, but I, I, I felt like it was more important to hear the important things rather than the, you know the some of the those small details yeah i i agree with, with any luck greg enjoyed it as much as we did and we can persuade him to come back and continue the conversation because it was um it was an awful lot of fun all right mate well the, the journey continues our thanks to you out there for listening i uh, hope you enjoyed that as much as we did if you're not following us on twitter already for some bizarre reason you really ought to rectify that you can follow me at ttmygh and i'm at fleck cap 
always has been and he always will be. Mate, I will talk to you soon. Look forward to it next time. Take care. Nothing we discussed during the end game should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.